This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Brave New Films, La Show, The Rachel Maddow Show, All In With Chris Hayes, Democracy Now!, and Economic Update, with a special metaphorical allegory told today by yours truly about some crazy shit that went down this week. I got arrested about 34 times due to drugs. Over and over again. Over and over and over again. I was arrested 14 times for being under the influence of a narcotic. And no one say, this is his 14th time through here, Your Honor, for the same charge. He needs help. What if we tried something different? I've been arrested so many different times. I've had a couple of possession charges, I've had a couple of prostitution charges, I've had a ton of probation violations. I really can't even remember what the first thing I got arrested for. Urban drug addiction has been with us for as long as we've had cities, and so many major social problems come to the criminal justice system to be fixed because there isn't something else out there. But don't ask the criminal justice system to do it all because the only thing we really know how to do is send people to prison. So eventually I started living in a tent and this is kind of my old home. This is what it looks like back here. It was an endless cycle. It was between tent and jail for like seven years. I've probably been booked in and out of King County Jail like 50 times. It hurt to lay down, it hurt to stand up. It was really excruciating. I came to Seattle, I wanted to buy a large amount of Oxycontins. They weren't readily available and everybody kept offering me heroin. I turned it down for four days. Finally, I was so sick, I was puking, I had diarrhea, I was shaking. I felt like I was gonna die. So finally I caved in and I did heroin. My addiction got out of hand, and three or four days turned into like nine years. Deltan kind of runs between First Avenue and Fourth Avenue. Almost every other night on the news, there were just like constant arrests happening. It goes on in the open for everyone to see. Two days ago, we saw probably 40 dealers. Drug addiction in Belltown is rampant. Police published this photo to show how many they collected in just one week. A few times, I honestly tried to just kick on my own, but I got so sick. I was to the point where it was either I have to be on methadone and quit, or I'm going to die. I told him nobody's ever given me a chance before. So I'm sitting in this cell and I'm already getting sick. And he comes back and he tells me, for your own good, I hope that you make it to that methadone appointment. There's one thing you have to do for me first is you have to talk to these people from this new program called the LEAD program and then you're free. 
you can leave. I'd never been given a chance before. Uh, the approach that we had over the last 35 years or so of just arresting and putting people in prison for having serious addictions, well, we all know intellectually that's not the answer. When we finally sat down and said, well, what we really want to do is have another option for the officer on the street, something other than taking them up to jail. What if you instead you could take them right to a treatment program? One reason it works is cost the taxpayers a lot more money for them to be on the streets. It costs a lot more money for police, it costs a lot more money for hospital visits. In the end, it's the humane, financial, smart thing to do. And that's what the LEAD program does. It provides both the relief to the neighborhood, the police will come and respond to open-air drug dealing, but it also can provide relief and hope to people who have had long-term addiction. Long-term addiction literally changes the chemical makeup of your brain and makes it impossible for you to be anything but an addict. I had everything that I would possibly want. A beautiful wife, two great kids. At one time I was making up to $185,000 a year. I just loved, I love heroin. I love that feeling. The good times don't last. I've seen tons and tons of people get arrested for it. And I've been stopped and caught with drugs on me a number of times. Personally, I've seen five people overdose and die. I know about 15. The last partner I worked with <laughs> overdosed and died in front of me. It was almost like this is my last chance. I can either wake up the next morning and go into treatment or I can come back here. Officer Willoughby, he actually said, have I had enough? I answered in the affirmative. He was like, well, let's see what we can do. Drug use and abuse should primarily be treated as a public health issue. LEAD is a harm reduction program, and if they do choose to be in the LEAD program, they will receive individualized case services, whether it be substance abuse treatment or housing or job training, with an understanding that breaking addiction, which can you know last for decades, is not going to be an overnight process. So it's really about meeting the client where they are at and trying to help with their basic needs first and then trying to work on substance abuse treatment. It wasn't government telling this person, this is what you need. It was the person who had been struggling with addiction saying, this is what I need to get back on my feet. And through the skillful help of the case managers, we're able to customize a way out for so many people. Most of the services in this city, you get like one shot. They give you all these services, they try to help you, and you test dirty, you're fucked. They, they, will, they will drop you. You know, I've relapsed, so I didn't call them or even go to the lead office for like two weeks. And when I walked in, my caseworker was like, where have you been? And I remember this very clearly. He said, so what, 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 what's next? What do we do next? I think I actually cried. For the first time in over like five years, did not feel like somebody had given up on me. I've been working with Brad just about a year now. And so wherever he's at, um, I'll be there. And I always tell my clients that, like, whether you're doing great, whether you're not doing great, uh, we're going to continue to work together. What makes us different is that, you know, we have a relationship with them. You know, actually hear their story, because a lot of our clients, you know, people don't really care about their story. And so um, respecting them and giving them dignity um, increases the likelihood of change. We can use the power of the law, and not as a blunt instrument, but as a way to nudge people toward an outcome that is better for them, that's better for the community. Life now is amazing. I have been clean for like a year and a half. I'm going to college. I wake up in a house. It's not a tent anymore. 
61 days ago, I was homeless, a full-on in my addiction, and today I go to meetings, I'm clean, I've been through a treatment program, and none of that would have happened without Lee. A couple of our detectives that have been working the Belltown area for a long time, they were just saying how now it is like 90% different as far as like very few people out compared to what it was two, three, four years ago before LEAD. The LEAD program is now expanding from Belltown throughout the downtown core and into Chinatown. We have a lot of people in need. So we have the resources now to go out and individually work with them. It's also been operated in Skyway and has now been replicated in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Do you want the same old, same old with the same results? <laughs> or do you want something that works? It's working here in Seattle. I think it could work anywhere. We're happy to be the example that shows that harm reduction, working hand in hand with law enforcement, can take us into uh, a new approach to drug crimes. And, and I think our nation you know, desperately needs that. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your brain on the war on drugs. If you thought that the NSA, maybe the CIA, maybe the FBI, maybe Google, maybe Facebook, Apple are the only people really following you, tracking you, using your data, think again. The U.S. government is tracking the movement of vehicles around the country in a clandestine intelligence gathering program that's been condemned as a further official exercise to build a database on people's lives, according to the Guardian newspaper. And it's your old friends at the Drug Enforcement Administration. They're monitoring license plates on a massive scale. This uh, information comes from the American Civil Liberties Union, which filed a Freedom of Information Act request from the DEA. The advocacy group said the DEA records it obtained from the Justice Department were heavily redacted and incomplete. Hey, that would be a good new job to ha- you know, for high school go- uh, career counselors. Document redactor. These records do, however, offer documentation that this program is a major DEA initiative that has the potential to track our movements around around the country said the ACLU official. If license plate readers continued to proliferate without restriction and the DEA held license plate reader, da- reader data for extended periods, the agency would soon possess a detailed and invasive depiction of people's lives, said the ACLU, especially if combined with other surveillance data. Data mining the information the DEA has begun to use at that technique, even though it's an unproven law enforcement technique, according to the Organization, the ACLU, the Wall Street Journal, citing official documents and anonymous officials reported the program built a national database to track vehicles in real time and stored hundreds of millions of records about motorists. The primary goal was to seize cars, cash, and other assets to combat drug trafficking. You know who gets those cars, cash, and assets? Local police departments. That's how they keep their budgets 
Nice. The database did expand to motor vehicles associated with other potential crimes, according to the journal. Officials have publicly acknowledged they track vehicles near the Mexican border to combat drug trafficking, but the database's expansion throughout the United States, as one DEA email put it, throughout the United States, worries at least one senator, Patrick Leahy, said the fact that this intrusive technology is potentially being used to expand the reach of the government's asset forfeiture efforts is of even greater concern, he said to Rupert Murdoch's Wall Street Journal. He called for additional accountability. How about some? A spokesman of the Justice Department, which includes the DEA, said the program complies with federal law. (laughs) That may be the problem. Quote, it is not new that the DEA uses the license plate reader program to arrest criminals and stop the flow of drugs, said the spokesman for the DOJ. It's not new. Relax. It's been going on for seven months. The government-run National License Plate Tracking Program, in fact, dates from 2008. Information had trickled out over the years, but far too little was known before the ACLU filed its Freedom of Information Act request. Those those meddling tricksters at the ACLU. So um, maybe what we should do, ladies and gentlemen, you know, you, the, the police still have to see our license plates, but if we could uh, use the same technology that they use on those things that you have to verify that a human read these letters and numbers on the Internet before you can access something, you know, those... CAPTCHA devices. If we could print our license plates and those so the machines couldn't read them, it's win-win. This is your brain on the war on drugs. has never before had such social cachet. I mean, like, maybe in World War II with the Victory Gardens, in places where nobody had access to any good food, and you were the gardener, you could produce the turnip, you know, and nobody else could. (laughs) And so you were the king of the world because you could grow people's stuff that they otherwise could not get. Maybe in the Victory Garden era, a gardener had this much social capital, but maybe not. What's happening right now might be more extreme because right now people who can garden, people who have the know-how and the experience and the stuff and the physical ability to grow things out of dirt, those people are about to be more socially in demand than basically anybody else in this giant state, Alaska, uh, and in this tiny beleaguered non-state called the District of Columbia. So, as you know, the states of Washington and Colorado have legalized pot already within the past year. Uh, Both of those states are now uh, places that have businesses, stores, dispensaries where you can walk in off the street and buy a joint. It's not that different a process than buying a six-pack of beer. They have legalized it already in Washington and in Colorado. This week, Alaska and Washington, D.C., 
joined them, Alaska on Tuesday and D.C. last night at midnight. In both of those places, pot is also now legal. However, unlike in Colorado and Washington, in Alaska and D.C., there are no pot stores. There's no place where you can buy it. If you're 21 or over, it's now legal in D.C. and Alaska uh, to possess a certain amount of pot. It's also legal to smoke pot, as long as you don't do it in public. But how are you supposed to get this pot that you can legally possess and legally smoke? You are not allowed to buy it. And nobody is legally allowed to sell it. And so, get to know a gardener. Pot is technically legal in Alaska and D.C. as of right now, but the only way you are legally allowed to get it is to grow it. To grow it yourself, or for somebody who has grown it themselves, uh, to freely give it to you in exchange for nothing. Not only can they not sell it to you, they can't trade you for it either. Uh, The Alaska Dispatch News did this handy Q&A on the day that Alaska legalized pot this week on Tuesday. And it's, you know, asking some very basic questions. What is still illegal as of February 24th when it, when it comes to pot? Well, among other things, you cannot sell pot. Really? Are you sure? Can I sell pot? No, you cannot sell pot. You can give away up to one ounce of marijuana in Alaska, but only, quote, without remuneration. Meaning you cannot get paid at all if you give somebody pot. And payment doesn't just mean money. Payment means anything. Because this is Alaska, they have to specifically point out that exchanging firewood for marijuana, for instance, that would be considered payment, and you can't do that. So those are your options in terms of legally obtaining pot that you're legally allowed to possess and smoke. The only way you can legally get it is to either grow it yourself or be incredibly, incredibly charming to somebody who does grow it themselves. Washington, D.C. has coined a new slogan to help people remember this weird rule about what is newly legal and what is not in the district. Uh, In D.C., the pot rules for short are home use, homegrown. That's the mantra. Home use, homegrown. You can only use pot at home, not anywhere out in public. And the only pot you can use is pot that you or somebody you love uh, has created from dirt and, and seed and water and light. Home use, homegrown. Of course, because it's D.C., there's also the problem of home rule. In Alaska, at least, this weird situation where only gardeners and the people who love them can get high, uh, that situation exists now in Alaska, but it won't exist forever. Alaska thinks that by this time next year, the state will have regulations in place, so people will be able to legally buy pot in the state instead of having to grow it or get it for free off somebody who grew it. That's going to change in Alaska within a year or so. But in D.C., that's apparently never going to change. At least it's never going to change while the Republicans are in control of Congress. I mean, even though there is no Republican member of Congress from D.C., there are a handful of Republican congressmen, specifically uh, Jason Chaffetz of Utah, Mark Meadows of North Carolina, and Andy Harris of Maryland, uh, who have decided to make it their mission to stop D.C. from implementing its own law, which D.C. residents passed with 70% of the vote last November. By virtue of the vestigial constitutional relic that allows Congress to interfere in the local laws of D.C., these Republicans in the House were able to block the D.C. City Council and the D.C. Mayor uh, from establishing any rules and regulations governing the sale of pot in the districts. That's why, that's why D.C. isn't going to have pot stores like Washington and Colorado do. 
that's why there's been a run on flower pots and miracle grow at your local gardening centers as well, right? But even though the Republicans in Congress blocked D.C. from setting up ways to sell pot specifically, they do not appear to have blocked D.C. from moving ahead on the other things that were approved in that voter-approved initiative, including legalizing possessing pot and smoking it in private. They've only blocked the sale part of it. So D.C.'s mayor and city council and and the police chief and the local authorities in D.C., they made their plans. They made their plans for legalization to go into effect as of midnight last night. They put out this handy flyer explaining what that means. Selling pot, not permitted. Public consumption of pot, not permitted. Driving while high, obviously not permitted. Consumption in public housing, not permitted. Nobody under 21 can possess it or smoke it or grow it. But as long as you home grow and you only give it away for free, you, if you're over 21, can possess up to two ounces and you can get baked at home in your private residence as long as your private residence isn't in public housing or anybody else that your landlord won't allow you to do it. So it's, it's, it's pretty limited in scope, right? But it is a change. And D.C.'s spunky new mayor uh, did this press availability to announce the change, to announce what was going to happen, to announce the rules, to announce that it was going into effect at midnight last night to take questions from the press. Explain, like, listen, I'm the mayor of the city. This is what we're doing. This is what that voter initiative means, and we're going ahead with it. She did that press availability, and the Republicans in Congress freaked out. Jason Chaffetz from Utah. Uh, And Mark Meadows from North Carolina, they sent the mayor of D.C. this threatening letter saying their oversight committee in, in the House is, quote, investigating your recent assertions that, in your opinion, Initiative 71 will take effect on February 26th. Quote, we strongly suggest you reconsider your position. Quote, if you decide to move forward with the legalization of marijuana in your district, you will be doing so in knowing and willful violation of the law. And then, look at this. They demanded that the mayor hand over to Congress a list of any D.C. employees who participated in any way, in any action related to the enactment of this initiative. They want the employee's salary and position, the amount of time the employee engaged in the actions. They want the list of actions taken. In case it was not clear enough that this is a threat from Republican members of Congress against the mayor and other employees of D.C. city government for implementing this new law. In case that threat wasn't clear enough, Congressman Jason Chaffetz, again, of Utah, uh, made the threat explicit. Uh, He told the Washington Post in an interview, quote, you can go to prison for this. We're not playing a little game here. We are putting them on notice. He told the Associated Press, quote, the penalties are severe and we're serious about this. Republican Congressman Andy Harris of Maryland That's not him at the microphone, that's him in the background. Andy Harris of Maryland, previously nationally famous only for this weird thing he did right around Valentine's Day, where he sat behind somebody else who was talking on C-SPAN, and he ostentatiously winked and made eyes at the C-SPAN camera for a solid two minutes while texting with somebody. (laughs) Republican Congressman Andy Harris, previously famous only for being the winker. He now says he was winking at his mom. Okay. Congressman Andy Harris is among the Republican members who uh, have gone super aggro on this issue with D.C. He is now demanding that the Attorney General of the United States and the Justice Department arrest D.C. city officials and the mayor for going ahead with legalizing pot. There's up to two years prison time. You lose your job. There are fines involved. 
If you're feeling that there is a certain disconnect between what these Republican congressmen uh, are doing to D.C., and Republicans supposedly believing in local control and a federal government that doesn't overreach. If you're feeling that disconnect, uh, you are not alone in that feeling. Congress blocked uh, Washington, D.C.'s uh, voter-approved uh, ballot measure to legalize yeah. Yeah. Uh, marijuana. And I just wonder, doesn't that cut against the whole Republican message of state rights and small government and power to the people that you and your party are such a fan of? Well, uh, Washington, D.C. is not a state. And Washington, D.C. has a lot to offer, but, you know, uh, free reign on marijuana use, uh, I just don't buy that. I just don't think that's, that's the way they should operate. So states' rights, yes, but Washington, D.C. is not a state. So you point out that Washington, D.C. is not a state, but certainly everybody who lives in Washington, D.C. pays federal taxes. Uh, they voted uh, to allow that in the place where they live, and now Congress has come in and said, no, no, no. We don't. We don't think that's appropriate. Isn't that a little bit Big Brotherish, a little paternalistic? Well, again, uh, looking at the Constitution, it, it, Washington D.C. is different. Uh, they're not a state, and uh, we have a role to play. And the Congress passed this, and um, I just don't think that recreational marijuana in Washington D.C. Uh, is the right direction to go. What would you say to people who say, well? Mr. Chavis, I live in Washington, D.C., you live in Utah. It might not be right for Utah, but we believe in well, Washington, D.C. I, I spend a, a, a lot of my time here as well. You keep that up, Congressman, and pretty soon there's going to be bus trips of people going from D.C. to Utah to say, hey, Utah, here's how you ought to run things. I spend some time here. So, so we are in this incredibly weird moment right now. I mean, it is, it is weird enough that temporarily in Alaska and apparently permanently in D.C., you can smoke pot, and you can have pot, but you cannot get pot <laughs> unless you can grow it. So it's, a, it's, a, it's like a radical gardening mandate. That is weird enough. But on top of that, Washington, D.C.'s duly elected mayor and city council are now being told by Republican members of Congress that D.C. going ahead with this new law, even in this limited way, means that the mayor and the city council ought to go to prison. Some Republican members of Congress are calling for the feds to arrest D.C.'s mayor and city council members when they arrive here at work later this morning. Mayor, how do you react to the talk that you might go to jail? That, that part of this. Well, um, I, I, you've heard that we believe that, that we're acting uh, lawfully. So I have a lot of things to do here in the District of Columbia. Me being in jail wouldn't be a good thing. Let's come together to combat the evil Experience the mind-expanding powers of acid. It's psychedelic, baby. That's what it's all about. Bob was not impressed. He didn't know much about LSD, but what he had heard he didn't like. Acid seemed like a whole lot more trouble than it was worth. Sure, taunted Frank. Exactly what the establishment wants you to believe. And you just beat it up. 
We have a long and rather colorful history when it comes to experimenting with LSD, both inside and outside of the lab. And now, for the first time in 40 years, there is a controlled trial of the drug's effects. The results are not what you might think. A newly published study by the Journal of Nervous and Mental Disease tested the drug on a dozen people who were terminally ill and found that LSD significantly reduced their end-of-life anxiety. According to the New York Times, a loose coalition of researchers and fundraisers are working to bring hallucinogens back into the fold of mainstream psychiatry. It's evidence like this that tends to challenge the preconceived notions we have or have been taught to have toward illicit drugs. Recently, I sat down with neuroscientist Carl Hart, and some of the things we talked about was the notion of a casual crack user, the relative harm of tobacco and crack ingestion for pregnant moms, and the differences between meth and Adderall, which are basically, well, you'll see. In a short amount of time, this man, Dr. Carl Hart, managed to do exactly what the title of his book says it will do, which is challenge everything I thought I knew about drugs and society. One of the things that we were interested in in our lab was we wanted to know whether or not crack cocaine users can, could say no to crack cocaine if they were offered the drug and they were also offered some alternative. In this case, the experiment that we did was we offered them $5 as, as an alternative. And what you see is that the crack cocaine users will take a really, when we're talking about a nice dose of crack cocaine, they will take crack on about half of the occasions and money on the other half of the occasions. But if you increase the money to some like $20, they almost never take the drug. They always take the money. But that's rational behavior, and that's what you would expect. So there, anyone watching this is going to say, every single person has had someone in their life yes. who has a, a relationship to a substance that does cause them to be deeply irrational, to do deeply destructive things, yes. to make choices in which they will walk away from things they should take yes. for the substance. Yes. And so when people hear this, I just want you to respond to what's yes. going through the head of those people watching yeah, right so, now. Uh, to be clear, that these people are addicts. They meet criteria for drug addiction. They, that's one they of the requirements addicts. to be in the study. They are addicts. But the person that you described, the one who will just do irrational behavior to uh, to uh, receive their drug, um, certainly that is a person. But that person is probably doing irrational behavior not only in regards to the drug, but other sort of areas in their life. Mm. When we think about, just think about a former lover or someone who you just had a difficult time leaving for whatever reason. You did some irrational behaviors uh, while you were in that relationship. The same is true. Some people do that with drugs, but it's not like the drug is controlling the behavior to the extent that we we believe this is so anathema to the way we think about this. Like I even I've read the book, I've talked to you, I even just had this I just feel like it doesn't jibe with what I've seen. It feels like it's making some assault yes. on what I've seen. I've seen people ruin their lives with the substance. I've seen it. That's a great point. That's an excellent point because I think everybody has seen what you just said. But the thing is, is that they really haven't seen what they think they've seen in that when we think about addiction, there are, people are addicted for a variety of reasons. Some people have, co uh, many people have co-occurring co psychiatric disorders. So they're depressed, they have schizophrenia, they have anxiety. Yeah. All of those sorts of things plays a role in it. Other people, no job, lack of options or attractive options. You have all of these reasons before we can attribute the behavior solely yeah. to the drug. We have to tease apart all these other things. Right. So what, what, what I think the, 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 the kind of takeaway here is that we, we, there's a lot of tangled 
thinking about what the cause is and what's the effect. Right? Absolutely. So we think that, the, that the, the cause is the drugs and the effect is joblessness. The cause is the drugs and the effect is an emotional life that is a wreck. The cause is the drug and the effect is broken relationships. And what you're saying are joblessness, broken relationships, and emotional life that are the wreck could be part of the thing that is causing the drug use. Right on. That's precisely it. And you know, when we think of it from that perspective, it's a lot more nuanced and it's a lot more complex. And it takes away some of the sexiness of the stories that we tell in our TV shows. Breaking Bad, one of the number one shows in the country. That means that all of those shows now have to be more nuanced. Who wants nuance in their drama? Many of the children who were the so-called classic cocaine babies were premature babies. And the symptoms that were seen on the videos, on television, the you know tremoring arms and all that, that was prematurity. You could have taken any premature baby and gotten the same image. There's a whole raft of literature after the kind of media hysteria in which it showed, for instance, crack babies, right? right. We were all we all knew about crack right. babies. Right. And it seemed it did not seem crazy. It seemed right. fairly intuitive. Right. If you are pregnant and you're smoking crack, that's gonna mess up your kid. Right. It turned out it wasn't necessarily messing up kids or no not nearly to the extent that we thought it would, right? That's exactly right. And now mind you, nobody is saying that people should go out and smoke crack during yeah. pregnancy. Right. But the point is is that when when all the evidence came out, the effects of crack cocaine or cocaine on on a pregnant woman or the fetus was the same as the effects of tobacco on the fetus. Exactly the same. And these kids, they might... I don't, you're saying that to me and I still don't believe it. Like, I understand. No, I'm just, I'm being totally honest here. Like, like, I know you're saying that. I know that's what the literature, I've seen the citations in your book. I know that's the literature. But I, there's just part of me that's like, that cannot possibly be true. Yeah, you know, when, so when, I get that a lot, as you know. And, and, and uh, I don't know what to say to that. I mean, right, yeah, yeah. I deal in evidence, and if everybody, one of the things that we wanted, I wanted to do with the book was to increase the intellectual tone around discussions of drugs. But in order to do that, we all have to play by the rules of evidence. But if people are allowed to have their faith-based beliefs, right? In which I just I say can't. that's that can't yeah. possibly be true, doctor. Yeah, I, I can't, I can't do right. anything about that. I mean, and so I just. So I'm trying to speak to the people who believe in evidence. So you think we are repeating what we did in the in the late 80s, early 90s with crack with methamphetamine right now? We we certainly are. We punish uh, methamphetamine more harshly than any other drug other than crack. Um, um, and in the hysteria, when we start to see things like the meth mouth, there's virtually no evidence for like this dental decay that we see that p these pictures that people show. Really, there's virtually no evidence. So when we think about methamphetamine, think about Adderall. Adderall is the detention deficit disorder order drug that right. a lot of college students yep, take. Yep. Uh, same drug. Nobody's talking about... It's not the same drug. It's the exact same drug. The only difference is that methamphetamine has a methyl group attached to it, but we did a study in which we, uh, along with other people, in which we uh, tested the effects of a drug like Adderall compared to methamphetamine. They produce identical effects. They, they are almost identical chemically in terms of the chemical structure. Uh, they're the same effect. And so but we have these wildly different narratives surrounding these drugs, and that's what, that's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to stop the hysteria so we don't make this same mistakes.
One part of President Obama's new budget that has received little attention is the war on drugs. The White House is seeking $27.6 billion for federal drug control programs, nearly $1 billion more than last year. More than half the money will be allocated for drug law enforcement by the Pentagon, uh, Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, and the Drug Czar's office. Hundreds of millions of dollars have also been requested to be spent fighting the war on drugs in Colombia, Mexico, and Central America. The budget also includes a line item that would clear the path for allowing legal sales of marijuana in Washington, D.C. Well, today we spend the rest of the hour looking at the U.S. drug war with British journalist Johan Hari, uh, author of the new book, Chasing the Scream, The First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Um, the book begins a century ago with the passage of the Harrison Narcotics Tax Act, the law that launched the modern-day drug war, not only in the United States but around the world. The book also details the latest science behind addiction. Johan Hari recently wrote a widely read piece for Huffington Post headlined, The Likely Cause of Addiction Has Been Discovered, and It's Not What You Think. Johan, welcome to Democracy Now! What is it then? Well, it's fascinating. If you had said to me four years ago when I started on the really long journey through nine countries to write this book, what causes, say, heroin addiction? I would have looked at you like you were a little bit simple-minded and I would have said, well, heroin causes heroin addiction. We've been told a story for a hundred years that is so deep in our culture that we just take it for granted. We basically think, if you, me, and I guess there's about 20 people in this office, if we all took heroin for 20 days, by day 21, because there are chemical hooks in heroin, our bodies would physically need the heroin and we would be heroin addicts. That's what we think heroin addiction is. The first thing that, and I, I had a really personal reason to want to look into this, we had a lot of addiction in my family. One of my earliest memories is of trying to wake up one of my relatives and not being able to. And one of the first things, when I was looking at what really causes addiction, that alerted me that that story may, there's something wrong with that story. So when it's explained to me, if one of us steps out here today and we get hit by a car, right, God forbid, and we break our hip, we'll be taken to hospital, there's a very good chance we'll be given a lot of diamorphine. Diamorphine is heroin. It's much better heroin than your score on the streets because it's 100% pure as opposed to, you know, massively contaminated. You'll be given it for quite a long period of time. That is happening in every hospital in the United States, all over the developed world. People have been given lots of heroin for long periods of time. You will have noticed something odd about that. Your grandmother was not turned into a junkie by her hip operation. If what we thought about addiction was right, those people should be leaving hospital as addicts. In fact, they're not. When I learned that, I didn't really know what to do with it until I went and met an incredible man called Bruce Alexander, who's a professor in Vancouver. He explained to me, the old theory of addiction comes from a series of experiments that were done earlier in the 20th century. They were actually featured in a famous anti-drugs ad from the 80s in America. Very simple experiment. Your, your viewers can do it at home if they're feeling a little bit sadistic. You get a rat and you put it in a cage and it's got two water bottles. One is just water and one is water laced with either heroin or cocaine. If you do that, the rat will almost always prefer the drugged water and almost always kill itself. And so it was concluded, there you go, that's addiction. But in the 70s, Bruce comes along and says, well, hang on a minute, we're putting the rat in an empty cage. It's got nothing to do except drink the drugged water. Let's do this differently. So Bruce built Rat Park. Rat Park is like heaven for rats. They've got loads of cheese. I do think it's cheese. It's some very nice food that rats like. Loads of coloured balls, loads of friends. They can have loads of sex. Anything a rat can want, it's got in Rat Park. And they've got both the water bottles, they've got the normal water and the drugged water. But here's the fascinating thing. They obviously tried both the water bottles because they don't know what's in them. They don't like the drugged water. The rats in Rat Park use very little of it. 
they never overdose, and they never use in a way that looks like addiction or compulsion, which is fascinating. There's a really interesting human example. There's loads of human examples, but I'll give you a specific one in a minute. But what Bruce says is this shows that both the right-wing theory of addiction and the left-wing theories are wrong. The right-wing theory is, you know, you're a hedonist, you party too hard, you know, that you indulge yourself. It's a moral flaw. The left-wing theory is your brain gets hijacked, you get taken over. What Bruce says is it's not your morality, it's not your brain, it's your cage. Addiction is an adaptation to your environment. Really, and I, there's massive implications of that, but there's a really interesting human example that was actually going on at the same time as the Rat Park experiment. It's called the Vietnam War. 20% of American troops in Vietnam were using heroin a lot. And if you look at the news reports from the time, there's a real panic because they believed the old theory of addiction. They believed that if you, um, these troops were going to come home and you were going to suddenly have enormous numbers of addicts on the streets of the United States. What happened? All the evidence is the vast majority come home and just stop. Because if you're taken out of a hellish pestilential jungle where you don't want to be and you could be killed at any moment, and you go back to your nice life in Wichita, Kansas, with your friends and your family and the purpose in life, it's the equivalent of being taken from the first cage to the second cage. You go back to your connections. What, what this shows us is, I, I think there's huge implications for the war on drugs, and that obviously the war on drugs is built on the idea that chemicals cause addiction and we need to physically eradicate the chemicals from, from the United States now. I don't think that's physically possible. We can't even keep them out of prisons and we've got a walled perimeter. But let's grant the philosophical premise behind that, right? If, in fact, the chemicals are not the primary driver of the addiction, if, in fact, huge numbers, in fact, the vast majority of people who use those chemicals don't become addicted, if, in fact, the driver is isolation, pain and distress, then a policy that's based on inflicting more isolation, pain and distress on addicts is obviously about it. It's what I saw in Arizona. I went out with a, a female chain gang that are forced to wear T-shirts saying I was a drug addict and, you know, made to dig graves and collect trash. And, you know, the idea that imposing more suffering on addicts will make them better if suffering is the cause is crazy. I actually think there's real implications for the politics that democracy now covers so well and that we believe in so much. We have created a society where huge numbers of our fellow citizens can't bear to be present in their lives and have to medicate themselves to get through the day with these drugs. You know, we've, there's nothing, a hyper-capitalist, hyper-individualist society makes people feel like the rats in that first cage, that they're cut off, they're cut off from source of meaning. There's nothing, as Bruce explains, there's nothing in human evolution that prepares us for being as isolated as the, you know, as the ideal citizen of a hyper-capitalist, hyper-consumerist country like yours and mine. In your book, you, you delve into the origins of the of our modern drug war and and come up with some surprising information that initially it was uh, actually targeting uh, key figures african-american figures uh... in in the musical world Could you talk about that yeah not far from where we are now in nineteen thirty nine billy holiday stands on stage in a hotel as she sings the song strange fruit which obviously your viewers will know is an anti-lynching song her goddaughter Lorraine Feather said to me you've got to understand how shocking this was right Billie Holiday wasn't allowed to walk through the front door of that hotel she had to go through the service elevator to have an African-American woman standing up at a time when most pop songs were like twee you know PS I love you that kind of thing singing against lynching was in front of a white audience was regarded as really shocking and that night according to her biographer Julia Blackburn she's told by the Federal Bureau of Narcotics stop singing this song Federal Bureau of Narcotics was run by a man called Harry Anslinger, who I think is the most influential person who no one's ever heard of. 
Harry Anslinger takes over the Department of Prohibition just as alcohol prohibition is ending. And he wants to find a new purpose for it. He, you know, he's got this huge bureaucracy he wants to run. And he's really driven by two passions an intense hatred of African-Americans. I mean, this is a guy who was regarded as a crazy racist by the crazy racists in the 1930s. He used the N-word in official police reports so often that his senator said he should have to resign. And a really strong hatred of addicts. And Billie Holiday, to him, was like the symbol of everything that was going wrong in America. And so he gives her this order. She refuses. She basically says, screw you, I'm an American citizen. I'll say what I want. She had grown up in segregated Baltimore, and she had promised herself she would never bow her head to any white man. And that's when Harry Anslinger begins the process of stalking her and eventually, I think, playing a role in her death, as was explained to me by her friends and by all the archival research. The first person he sends to stalk her is an agent called uh, Jimmy Fletcher. Harry Anslinger hated employing African-Americans, but you couldn't really send a white guy into Harlem to stalk Billie Holiday. It'd be kind of obvious. So Jimmy Fletcher follows her around for two years, and she was so amazing, he fell in love with her. And he felt ashamed his whole life for what he did. He busts her. She's sent to prison. The trial, she said, uh, the trial was called the United States versus Billie Holiday, and that's how it felt. And when she gets out, exactly what happens to addicts all over the United States today happens. What's happened to those women I met in Arizona, she can't get a job. You needed a license to be able to perform anywhere where alcohol was sold, and they wouldn't give her the license. So, you know, her friend Yolanda Bavan said to me, what's the cruelest thing you can do to a person? It's to take away the thing they love. She sinks back into addiction when she's in her early 40s. She collapses here in New York City. She's taken to hospital and she's convinced the, the narcotics agents aren't finished with her and she was right she says to one of her friends they're going to kill me in there don't let them they're going to kill me she was right in a hospital bed she's diagnosed with liver cancer i spoke to the only surviving person who was still in that room who'd been in that room she's handcuffed to the bed mm. And they take away her record player and her candies. They don't let her friends in to see her. One of her friends manages to insist to the doctors they give her methadone because she'd gone into withdrawal. She starts to recover a little bit. Ten days later, they cut off the methadone. She dies. Her friend Annie Ross, you know, there are lots of things that, I think there's lots of things in that dynamic that tell us a lot about the drug war, that it's founded in a race panic. At the same time that Harry Anslinger finds out that Billie Holiday is using, is a heroin user, he finds out that Judy Garland was a heroin user. He advises her to take slightly longer vacations and tells her she's going to be fine. Spot the difference. But the most amazing thing to me about the Billie Holiday story that really helped me to think about the addicts in my life is she never stopped singing that song. She always found somewhere to sing it. You know, she went wherever they would have her, and she sang her song about lynching, no matter how much they tried to intimidate her. And to me, that's really inspiring, not just for resisting the racism of the drug war, but actually for realising that addicts can be heroes. All over the world, while we're talking, people are listening to Billie Holiday, and they are feeling stronger. And that is an incredible achievement. And the people resisting the drug war who I met all over the world, from a transsexual crack dealer in Brownsville, Brooklyn, to, you know, a scientist who was feeding uh, hallucinogens to mongooses to see what had happened, to the only country that's ever decriminalized all drugs, there is heroism and resistance to this war all over the world. Southern trees bear a strange fruit, blood on the leaves, and Blood at the root, black bodies swinging in the southern breeze, strange fruit hanging from the poplar trees. The next uh, update I want to talk to you about has to do, very brief. It has to do with a letter sent by the Inspector General for the American military effort in Afghanistan, that one of long standing, 
And it has to do with the $7 billion, according to the U.S. government, that the United States spent to eradicate the poppy crop in Afghanistan. Poppies, as I assume most of you know, are the raw material for opium and all the drugs that are derived from opium, the opiates, they're called. They are a scourge around the world in many, many parts of the world. Afghanistan was and is the largest single producer of opium uh, through the poppy plant in the world. And the United States was committed as part of its occupation of Afghanistan, which it is still doing, it was committed to eradicate this scourge of the world. Hence the interesting thing about the report of the Inspector General, uh, a report made to Secretary of State Kerry, Secretary of Defense Hegel, and others, was simply this. The effort, $7 billion worth of it over many years, is a complete and abject failure. How do we know? Because in 2013, the last full year for which we have data, the amount of opium and poppy crop uh, produced in Afghanistan was the greatest in the history of that country. Uh, So clearly the eradication effort uh, has failed. As an economics program, why am I interested? Because it's poverty that drives this industry. A disproportionate number of people who turn to opium as an escape from the difficulties of their lives are poor people. And when you look in Afghanistan for who produces the poppy, it is the poor peasants of that country, the farmers. This is their most cash-worthy crop. It's the way they can survive because they can produce it, they know how, they know where, and there's a good market for it. So it's the poverty of the farmers of Afghanistan that drives them to produce the supply of opium. And it's the poverty all over the world that is a major producer of the demand for opium. And so powerful is the poverty around the world, and so powerful, therefore, the drive to produce it and to consume it, that even the most powerful government in the world, occupying the country of Afghanistan, day and night, from the air, from the sea, from the ground, willing to budget $7 billion dollars, fails completely to overcome the poverty that other parts of the United States reproduce. I'm up every morning with the sun. I work all day till the evening comes. Our guest is Johan Hari, British journalist, author of the new book, Chasing the Scream, the First and Last Days of the War on Drugs. Juan? Well, Johan, in your travels uh, around the world to, to delve into this story, there you found places that have chosen another way. 
Could you talk about specifically Portugal and the importance of what's happened in Portugal in terms of, of, of drug addiction and also Vancouver where you spent some time? Yeah, I was so inspired by what I saw in both those places. It was fascinating to go to the places that have abandoned the drug war model and tried the alternatives. In Portugal in the year 2000, they had the biggest, one of the biggest drug problems in Europe. One percent of the population was addicted to heroin, which is kind of mind-blowing. And they basically every year they tried harder the American way. They cracked down harder and every year the problem got worse. So one day the Prime Minister and the leader of the opposition got together and they said, look, let's just set up a panel of doctors to figure out what would genuinely solve this problem and let's agree in advance that we'll do whatever they tell us to do. So it just took it out of politics. So the panel goes away for a year and a half, led by an amazing man called Huao Gulao, and they come back and they say, look, decriminalise everything, from cannabis to crack, but, and this is the crucial thing, transfer all the money we currently spend on arresting drug users, imprisoning drug users, trying drug users, all of that, into incredibly good drug treatment. Now, partly that's rehab, psychological support, that kind of thing, but actually, much more, it's the stuff that learns the lesson of Rat Park. We could be drunk now. All three of us could be drinking vodka now, right? We're not, because we've got a job we love, we've got something to do, we've got a purpose in life. The goal of the Portuguese decriminalization is to say, every addict needs to be given a purpose in life. So one of the biggest things was just subsidised jobs. If you used to be a mechanic and your life fell apart, they go to a garage and they say, employ this guy for a year and we'll pay half his wages. It was all about getting addicts reconnected, getting them out of the first cage into the second cage, if you like. And it's been 15 years, nearly 15 years, and the results are in. And they're kind of incredible. Injecting drug use is down by 50%. You know, Every study shows addiction is significantly down, overdose is massively down. And one of the most moving interviews I did was with a guy called Juan Figuera, who led the opposition to the decriminalisation. He was the top drug cop in Portugal. And he said, I'm paraphrasing the exact words are in the book, but he said, everything I said would happen didn't happen. And everything the other guys said would happen did. And, you know, he talked about how he was ashamed that he'd spent 20 years arresting drug users and he hoped the whole world followed our example. The other really amazing example, and I think is particularly relevant to Democracy Now! listeners, and viewers. It's the story of what happened in Vancouver. Again in the year 2000, there was a homeless street addict on the streets of the downtown east side of Vancouver called Bud Osborne. It was the area with the worst addiction in North America. And Bud Osborne was watching his friends die all around him. People would use behind dumpsters to, so the police wouldn't see them, but obviously the police can't see you, no one else can. And Bud said, I've got to do something, I can't just watch all these people die. But he also said, I'm a homeless street addict, what can I do? He had a very simple idea. He just said to all the other addicts, why don't we start just patrolling the alleyways? Why don't we just start, when we're not using, we'll have a rotor, we'll patrol, and we'll monitor each other, and we'll call an ambulance. Let's go to Bud Osborne. Um, okay. Speaking in 2011 at a health harm reduction in the law forum in Vancouver. A flame burst inside me, fueled by grief and rage, like a spontaneous, fierce combustion flashing up through my nervous system and roared in my head like a psychic explosion because of another, because of too many, because of an unnecessary overdose death, yelled two words repetitively in my head, no more, no more, no more, of this heartbreaking, family-shattering, community-diminishing pain of overdose deaths. That was Bud Osborne. I feel a bit emotional looking at that. The what Bud achieved was incredible. So overdose started to fall because they're doing these patrols. 
And then they started to get a bit energised and the addicts started to think, oh, maybe we're not the pieces of rubbish that people have been saying we are. Maybe we can do things differently. They started to learn that in Frankfurt, Germany, they'd opened safe injecting rooms where people could use legally and be monitored by doctors and it massively saved lives. So Bud and his friends, a big group of them, started to stalk the mayor of Vancouver everywhere he went. A guy called Philip Owen, who was a kind of right-wing businessman, think Mitt Romney, right? guy who said that addicts should be taken and put in an army base somewhere, right? For two years, they followed him everywhere he went with a coffin. And the coffin said, who will die next, Philip Owen, before you open a safe injecting room? This goes on for years, they get a bit demoralised. And one day, to his eternal credit, Philip Owen just says, who the hell are these people? And he goes... And he meets loads of addicts and he spends a load of time on the downtown east side and he opens his heart and he says, I had no idea it was like this. And he holds a press conference and they have the chief of police and they have the coroner and they have an addict. And he says, I'm never going to talk about addiction again without having an addict here. We're going to open this first safe injecting room in North America. We're going to have the most compassionate drug policies in North America. They open this injecting room. Philip Owen is deselected by his own right-wing party because they're so appalled. He's replaced by a candidate who continues keeping the drug room open for a more liberal party. And, you know, it's been 15 years now, 10 years now, sorry, and the results are in. Overdose is down by 80%. 80%. Average life expectancy in that neighbourhood is up by 10 years. Those are figures you only get when a war ends. And I spoke to Philip Owen and he said it was the proudest thing he ever did. And he would sacrifice his political career all over again. And looking at Bud, I was thinking, you know, Bud died last year. He was only in his early 60s, but having been a homeless addict during a drug war, it takes a toll on you. When he died, they sealed off the streets of the downtown east side where he had lived. And they had this amazing memorial service. And there were a huge number of people in that crowd who knew that they were alive because of what Bud had done. And I would say to anyone watching this, you know, it's so easy to feel daunted by the big political challenges we've got. It's so easy to think about things as huge as the drug war. You are so much more powerful than you know. Bud was a homeless street addict, and he started a movement that has transformed Vancouver, transformed Canada, and saved thousands of people's lives. If he can do it, we can do it. This war has been going for a hundred years. We can end it now if we choose to. Hi, Jay. This is Caleb from Austin, Texas. I often think to call in, but this is my first time to call. Uh, I could fill your phone with rants about anti-vaxxers, but uh, calling about uh, with a small thought about gender pay gap. Uh, as background, I come from a typical conservative, racist, white, uber-religious Texas family, uh, and I've been slowly recovering from that as I grow older, and I think for, for myself. Um, I have got responses to the gender pay gap issue um, that when I pause to consider them objectively come from a very male-dominated power protecting viewpoint. Uh, so I hope your listeners will have some grace for me uh, if this thought is so clearly basic that I should have thought younger. Uh, but please hear me uh, from, from my position of growth. When I hear stats about the gender pay gap issue, my conservative background, the voices of those I was raised by, come up and say things like, well, of course women should be paid less on average for even the same job. If we consider experience, then on average, since more women on average take time off for having children than men do, then on average, women have less less experience at that same job than the average man, et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't need to elaborate on the argument for you or your listeners, but I'm not calling to agree with that argument, uh, even if my own brain sometimes generates it uh, due to my background, but uh, to say how I would rebuff that. Um, this is logically how I would rebuff it with my experience. Uh, a little bit more background. Uh, I've been married... 
to my wife for 14 years, and uh, we had our first child. When we had our first child, we were both working, and she wanted to stay home and devote time uh, to our daughter. And I agreed, and, and became this, this old money earner. Uh, we had, um, we have since had a second daughter, and my wife has not had any income for about nine years. So when my wife goes back to work uh, for income, uh, do I think that she should earn less than myself if hypothetically she gets hired to do my exact job? Uh, and well, no. Even if some sort of logic might say, well, she's less experienced in this exact job that I have nine years more experience in. Uh, here's why that argument isn't complete. Uh, her time teaching and training our daughters uh, is is not time away from work experience. It is experience that a workplace should value, uh, not more or less than work for income, but but, but the same. Um, a side note: I, I'm aware that pay discrimination against uh, my wife for not earning money for the last nine years doesn't only come from men, but also to a to a much lesser degree, I'm sure, from women who, uh, for their own reasons, didn't or couldn't make the decision that she made to not earn money for a while. Uh, and side note, uh, while she wasn't earning money, she read, studied, stayed up late, put extra time in, sacrificed. Gosh, I recall that the you know, educational station she used to set up in our house for the girls before they were in school, uh, carefully planning time and uh, rotating events for the maximum growth and education of our daughters. I recall an incredible amount of self-study and research that she did. Um, to be as effective in her current role as possible. And, and while I, too, of course, studied and uh, worked to be a good father, um, this is time and experience that is something I don't bring to my job as much as she would. So if she was hypothetically hired today for my exact job, uh, would I agree that her time away from income-generating employment means that she should get a lower salary? And, uh, and I would say not at all. Not at all. Her background is different. But that might actually mean that she brings m much or more to a job uh, as my years of getting paid uh, to do something. Uh, anyway, just some random thoughts on this issue for my own family. Uh, everyone always signs off by saying, keep, uh, keep up the good work. I want to add a little clause. Uh, so keep up the good work. Um, your work uh, helps me be smarter on these issues, Jay. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. So today, I have a story to tell you, but I have to tell it in a special way because there are basically two kinds of people in the world right now. There are the people who know what happened this past week and are sick to death of hearing about it, and there are the people who have no idea what I'm talking about. So as to not bore to death the people who know what I'm talking about while sort of informing those who don't know what I'm talking about, I've decided to tell the story entirely in metaphor. So the story I'm about to tell, everything about it is a metaphor. Ready? So I'm coming to you on Friday, last weekend... Patricia Arquette, uh, real person, not a metaphor, but Patricia Arquette, the real person, was walking through a metaphorical, beautiful park. Lots of people were watching her. Uh, you know, the flowers were blooming. It was fragrant. It was beautiful. And she stepped very accidentally in a little pile of dog shit. Boy, you know, tough luck, right? But really tough luck was it turned out that pile of dog shit was actually a gateway to a wormhole to the past full to the brim of dog shit. I mean, talk about bad luck, right? So Elon James White, host of This Week in Blackness, another real person, not a metaphor, he started commenting on Patricia Arquette metaphorically stepping into a wormhole full of dog shit. 
and Nicole Sandler, another progressive radio show host, also not a metaphor, asks, you know, curious. Uh, she says, hey, I don't see any dog shit. And also, what the fuck is a wormhole? What are you guys talking about? And at this point, Katie, another real person uh, who works on this show, alerted me, hey, like, there's some commotion going on in town square. Check it out. So I, I run over to see what's going on. I see Patricia Arquette. She's in the beautiful park. And I think, like, boy, that's a nice park. Hey, but what does that smell? Oh, man, that's unfortunate. I, I see what's happened now. But then I start listening to what's being said. And, you know, Elon and other people are talking about this wormhole that's opened up. And I'm like, wow, like, I've never even heard of a wormhole like that. But that's fascinating. And, like, now that you point that out, I see it. And, you know, I've, I never would have uh, come across that on my own. So anyway, as Nicole Sandler, at the same time, is asking Elon, what's this wormhole he's talking about? Because she doesn't know what it is, nor can she even smell anything strange about Patricia Arquette's shoes, because the fragrance from the flowers and the park being so beautiful are so overpowering that that's all she can see or smell. Well, Elon, apparently, around this time, thinks to himself, you know, look, if Nicole hasn't even heard of a wormhole before, I don't know that I need to, like, give the 101 lesson. Maybe she should just look it up on her own. So he kind of brushes her off a bit. So at this point, angry about being brushed off and incensed at the idea that anyone thinks that Patricia Arquette smells like anything other than a bouquet of flowers, Nicole pulls out a can of fire starter and threatens to do something rash. He's like, look, you better talk to me about what's going on or there's going to be trouble. So Elon, you know, he's, he's the first on the scene. He tries to talk her down. He explains that although the park Patricia Arquette was walking through was very beautiful and the flowers did smell very nice, that frankly, the mood was spoiled just a bit by that little misstep that resulted in you know small pile of dog shit being on her shoe and then opening up the wormhole full of dog shit. You know, things really got unfortunate at that point. And so at the same time, seeing what was going on, many sort of random passers-by in the town square started yelling things at Nicole. They were, they were frustrated that she couldn't see what Elon was talking about. So frankly, lots of nasty things were said about her, about how you know her sense of smell must be broken if she can't smell all this dog shit that's just been stirred up. And you know she must be blind if she can't see the wormhole that's staring her right in the face. It's right there in the park. She was basically in danger of falling into this dog shit wormhole herself if she wasn't careful. So, you know, she still, she can't see what's going on. So un, unconvinced by Elon's words and frankly, like driven into a, a frustrated rage by the shouts of these random passerbys, Nicole takes the fire starter, pours it over her head and lights a match in protest. And, you know, now these types of self-immolation protests don't usually last very long, like for pretty obvious reasons. But it turned out Nicole was wearing must have been like an asbestos suit of some kind because she ended up burning for days. Now, the first firefighter on the scene was uh, a friend of Elon's, actually, uh, Imani Gandhi. She's one of the co-hosts of This Week in Blackness. She shows up and she tries to convince Nicole to put out the fire, but she she sort of resisted and then and said that she would only put out the fire if everyone would just admit that the park that Patricia Arquette was walking through was beautiful and smelled like paradise and that those two things were the only things that mattered. And Almani was happy to agree that, of course, the park had been very nice and the flowers smelled lovely. But, I mean, she had to add on, like, well, there was that small thing. Like, she did kind of step in a pile of dog shit and then things really got out of control because it opened up that wormhole. Like, 
we can't just ignore the wormhole because we think the park is beautiful, right? So Imani was trying to give some advice to Nicole about how to maybe like be able to improve her senses, uh, maybe be able to see or smell uh, what was going on. And so she could, you know, recognize this giant shitty wormhole that Patricia Arquette had accidentally opened. Still, Nicole remained unconvinced. So at this point, I was thinking to myself about the times in my past when I'd had to improve my own senses and how, you know, I'd already gone through that process and how, you know, it's, it's not necessarily an easy process. You got to find the right prescription glasses and, you know, then eventually you can get to the point where you can see things like dog shit wormholes to the past. But even, even if you can see them, it still often takes someone to point it out to you before you can see them. So, you know, my, my senses aren't perfect, but I thought like, look, like I, I've been where Nicole is. Like I, I've had to go through the process of improving my senses. Maybe I can help. So I, I reached out to Nicole and suggested that, you know, I had the sort of a unique perspective on how to improve one's senses. And so, you know, maybe we could talk about it and, you know, get her to see things like the pile of dog shit or the wormhole. And then potentially we could put this whole self-immolation business behind us. So I go over to the town square. She's still sitting there slowly burning. And I start having a conversation with her. And she says that she's confused as to why no one will admit how beautiful and fragrant Patricia Arquette's park is. And so, of course, you know, I promptly agree with her. Well, yeah, the the park is beautiful and, and smells lovely for the most part. And then I reminded her even that, well, you know, I saw... Elon and Amani were also agreeing with you. They also said that the park was beautiful. Can, can we can we put that behind us? And you know, we talked for a bit, and I suggested that you know if she would only take off the asbestos suit, then she wouldn't be on fire anymore, and she could probably find herself like a good optometrist where she could get set up with some new prescription lenses that would allow her to see what she's been missing this whole time. Well, long story short, she decided not to take off the asbestos suit. And, you know, as I was walking away, she said, look, I would be happy to take off the suit and put the fire out if only I could get anyone to admit how beautiful Patricia Arquette's park was. I don't understand why why people can't see the park the way I do. And that's the story. So uh, if you would like to hear the non-metaphorical version of how all that went down, um... It, it it's it's a lot to take in, frankly. <laughs> you would have to listen – to get the full scope of it, you'd have to listen to uh, episodes from February 23rd through the 26th on both the Nicole Sandler Show and This Week in Blackness. I am interviewed on Nicole Sandler's show on the 26th. And then also on the 26th of this week in blackness, they discuss the interview that I was in. So, you know, if you want to, if you want to kind of come in at the end of the conversation and just catch what I had to say, you could do that. If you want to catch the whole thing, you got to listen to the whole, whole week's worth. But the silver lining about, you know, you can kind of get from the story. Uh, it's, uh, it's more like a Shakespearean tragedy than anything else. The silver lining is that the conversation really wasn't about the principal actors. It was about the spectators. So, you know, frankly, not much was learned by the principal actors in this story. But many, many spectators who saw the play during its uh, opening run said that they came away having learned a lot. So if you decide to open this book and read through it, chances are the the upside of it will be that you uh, will learn something coming out the other end. I, I think there's a good chance of that at the very least. 
That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it, leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher, and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestofleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame how we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing We can't see past all the sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're doing Stories and forget who it is with food.